Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Before we begin, I wish to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. This land was never ceded, has always been and will always be Aboriginal land. As we share knowledge today at this Sydney Ideas event, we recognize and respect the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country and pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. My name is Christopher Cody. I'm a musicologist from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, and I am thrilled to welcome you all here tonight to this discussion of copyright law and claims of music ownership. In the last 12 months alone, the Twitterverse has edged toward maximum outrage over claims of unauthorized borrowing in the music of Led Zeppelin, Katy Perry, Kraftwerk, uh, Ed Sheeran, as well as I'm sure many other names I'm forgetting. The 140 character sort of tweet sized summary of this outrage is basically that for the history of humanity's involvement in making music, quotation and transforming musical ideas have been the engines of creativity. To paraphrase my, my favorite Twitter argument, how can we possibly find Katy Perry guilty and Mozart innocent? Are they not both musical thieves? Twitter, wonderful sort of arena of discourse. Um, as a, an historical musicologist and unapologetic Katy Perry fan, I have to admit that I often find that argument pretty convincing, you know, and I like the way that it blurs the distinctions between high and low art. But I'm also aware of how difficult it's been for much of the 20th and 21st century for popular musicians to hold on to their intellectual property rights. And I'm thinking specifically here of American innovators like the artist Bo Diddley, who did so much, contributed so much intellectual work to the formation of rock and roll, yet reaped so little of the industry's profits. One of the lessons that I try to teach all of my students early on is that music at its core is a conversation. So when a popular artist quotes from another popular artist, really what they're doing is they're, they're saying, look, I hear you, but I'd like you to consider things from a different angle. That musical dialogue is what gives pop music, if not all music, it's, it's cultural bite, it's social saliency. But the legal framework we have historically relied on to determine the ownership of musical ideas tends to protect certain strains of that conversation better than others. That is when Katy Perry writes a melody that shouts out to Marcus Gray's joyful noise as she does on that song, Dark Horse. She's clearly in dialogue with that song and better acknowledge Marcus Gray in the credits of her song or face legal action, which she has done. But when Perry or any other popular musician for that matter draws on grooves or timbral frameworks similarly imbued with the intellectual labor 
of others, the requirement for acknowledging um, ownership is a little grayer. And personally, I often get stuck thinking through all of this. You know, on one day, I'll find myself arguing that quotation and musical borrowing, they're just really par for the course in music making. They've been happening forever, and we just need to relax. And then on the very next day, I'll find myself in a heated exchange about exploitation in the music industry and the way African-American artists were systematically ripped off on the road to rock and roll. Tonight, we're joined by two panelists who have spent a great deal of time thinking through these issues, Professor Ingrid Monson and Mr. Rob Uzerski. Professor Monson is an award-winning author and the Quincy Jones Professor of African-American Music at Harvard University. Professor Monson's monograph, Saying Something, Jazz, Improvisation, and Interaction, was published in 1996 and has been foundational in the discourse around how jazz artists dialogue with each other and comment on the world around them. Her monograph, Freedom Sounds, Civil Rights Call Out to Africa, Jazz in Africa, published by Oxford University Press in 2007, examines, among a plethora of themes, the power relationships that govern cross-cultural activity and how the US copyright system, quote, rewards songwriters and publishers, not performers, unquote. In 2015, she was called on to put her expertise to work in the legal arena as an expert witness for the Marvin Gaye family in the high-profile Blurred Lines copyright infringement lawsuit. Robert Uzerski is a barrister who practices in commercial law in Sydney. In 2011, he was part of the legal team that represented EMI in its copyright case relating to the Men at Work song, Down Under. That case concerned whether Men at Work had copied a two-bar flute riff from the iconic Australian song, Kookaburra Sits in an Old Gum Tree, which was still under copyright. The trial judge found that Men at Work had copied a substantial part of Kookaburra, and that decision was upheld on appeal to the full court of the federal court. EMI sought special leave to appeal to the high court, and Robert worked on that stage of the litigation. The high court ultimately refused the application for special leave, with the effect that the trial judge's judgment was upheld. The court awarded the owner of Kookaburra, Larrikin Music, 5% of the royalties of Down Under. As we'll see over the course of the next hour, the Down Under case and the Blurred Lines case offer excellent opportunities for unpacking how musical borrowing manifests in popular music and how these manifestations can sometimes get artists into legal trouble. Professor Monson has generously agreed to start us off with an overview of her work on the Blurred Lines case, and then we're gonna transition into a more freewheeling discussion with Rob. Please join me in welcoming Professor Monson to the stage. Well, first of all, I want to thank Sydney Ideas for having me here and Professor Cody in particularly for making it possible for me to be here in Sydney. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm going to talk about my role in the case, in the Blurred Lines case. Now, I'm perfectly aware that not everybody supports the outcome of this case. Um, and one of the things I want you to think about are the particularities of this particular musical work that may or may not apply to other situations, which I think will be part of our discussion af afterwards. In 2014-15, I served as one of two expert witnesses for the Marvin Gaye family in a lawsuit filed by Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke against Marvin Gaye's children, Frankie and Nona Gaye. 
Judith Finnell, who is a career forensic musicologist, served as the other music expert. Um, I'll give you a brief chronology of the case. Um, in the fall of 2014, uh, the Williams and Thick parties lost their motion for summary judgment, which then opened the uh, line uh, towards, uh, towards the trial. Uh, the trial was held in February 2015, and in early March, its verdict was announced. Uh, the jury uh, ruled in favor of the Marvin Gaye parties and awarded $7.4 million to the gays. The opposing side, of course, um, requested, made a request for a new trial. That was denied in July of 2015. The award was reduced to $5.3 million due to some accounting issues and half the future royalties on blurred lines. So, of course, the blurred lines parties filed for appeal, and the appeals process took an enormous amount of time. Um, it began in 2015. It wasn't resolved till 2018. Um, in the end, 14 musicologists signed an amicus curiae brief on behalf of the gay side of the case. Ten musicologists signed an amicus curiae brief on behalf of Williams and Thicke. Um, finally, in March of 2018, the appeals court upheld the verdict in a two-to-one vote. The dissenting judge criticized the majority for uncritical deference to musical experts. Um, so, our opponents applied for an en banc uh, appeal hearing, which, which would have been before all nine members of the Ninth Circuit. That was denied in July 2018, effectively ending the case, although they could appeal it to the Supreme Court since the issues in this case turn on evidence rather than a point of law. It was considered very unlikely to be accepted by the Supreme Court. My presentation is in two parts. The first provides details of the Blurred Lines infringement case, including presenting some of the musical evidence that was presented to the jury at trial. The second part addresses the social justice issues in the case and some thoughts about authorial cop copyright and fairness in the long history of African-American music. So let's begin with uh, some information about Got to Give It Up, the uh, song that was allegedly infringed by Blurred Lines. It was recorded in December 1976 and was released in early 1977. One unusual circumstance of the recording is that Marvin Gaye played all the instruments on the song, with the exception of the drum set. He played bass, keyboard, and hand percussion. He also sang lead and backing vocals. Gay created Got to Give It Up orally in the studio. The notation for the lead sheet was created after the recording of the song by a transcriber for Jobeat Publishing. The lead sheet was used as a copyright deposit for the work as required by the 1909 Copyright Act. The Blurred Lines attorneys argued that the gay children owned only the copyright deposit, not the recording. By this, they meant that the only basis for claiming infringement was the notation exactly as it appears in the copyright deposit. They consequently stressed notational rather than oral evidence as grounds for the existence of similarity. Um, they further argued that 
any similarity between the pieces was generic and hence not infringement. So I want to show you the lead sheet. This is the first page of the lead sheet. And here's a blow up of the first eight bars, which includes the baseline. If the baseline had not been included in the copyright deposit, we would not have been able to win this case. The Blurred Lines parties even petitioned to have the recording of Got to Give It Up excluded at trial. At first, Judge Kronstadt granted their petition to forbid our side from playing any part of the recording in court. A few days later, he amended his ruling to allow us to play only those parts of the recording that were represented in the copyright deposit. Our musical examples consequently were limited to bass, melody, and keyboard. The jury heard no percussion. The prohibition on playing the full recording was a standard far stricter than in previous cases, all of which had allowed uh, the playing of a disputed recording of a work. The main burden of presenting our musical examples in court fell to Judith Fennell since the testimony of the two experts could not overlap. My testimony centered on the question of why the combination of accompaniment parts to Got to Give It Up were not generic, but rather part of Marvin Gaye's composition. Since Gaye played the bass, keyboard, and hand percussion himself, his creative contribution to the accompaniment was not in question. I noted that the bass line had a rhythmic profile that was not like that of a generically expected Motown bass line, but was related to Motown. I pointed out that the offbeat keyboard part was similar, but not identical to a reggae accompaniment rhythm. I noted that in neither reggae nor Motown would you expect to find these two rhythms combined. I listened to hundreds of pre-1977 recordings to make sure. I would have been able to make an even stronger case had I been able to talk about the hand percussion, because there are actually three different rhythmic families combined in this very original groove, Motown, reggae, and salsa. Our side argued that what made the copying and got to give it up so striking was its combination of musical similarities. Their side argued that whatever similarities could be heard between the two pieces was generic and hence not predictable. I'm now going to play you some of the examples that were played at trial. Um, some and uh, and I think the ones I'm going to play are some of those that were most convincing to the jury. So the first was playing the bass and keyboard parts, um, which were called the heartbeat or the bed of the, um, of the piece in order to avoid the word groove, which was in the popular imagination, a too generic, uh, a term that implied that it was generic. So I'll play. Now the only difference between these examples that I'm showing you here and the ones at trial is these have the time points in the recording. For the trial, we had to take the time points of the recording out and put in measure numbers instead, because the time points indicated the recording. So here's the equivalent passage from Got to Give It Up. Mm -hmm. 
So then the jury heard that bed underneath uh, with, with, with the signature phrase of the melody. And you see the diagrams pointing out some similarities in the melody itself. I used to go out to parties And that's why I'm going to take a good girls Then they were, uh, we played for them the bass lines. You know, compared the bass lines. So here's the got to give it up bass line. blurred line. And then the keyboard parts. Here's got to give it up. Here's got to get, um, here's a blurred lines. I want to play that again. Now, the only part of the background melodies we were able to get in were the so-called theme X, which is a descending chromatic figure. We only got it in because this part appeared in later in the uh, copyright deposit. We argued that that was an inversion of the uh, half-step motion. So here it is. Blurred lines. Okay, now he was closed. But you're an animal. And Judith noted all the places within the song that this appears, 25% of the song, she argued. But I think this slide actually was very compelling for the jury. In this, we note that there are broader structural similarities between the songs. And one of the giveaways was the so-called parlando se section or the rap section in both pieces. It's a 24-bar section um, in the Marvin Gaye piece. He goes into a kind of sing-song, you know, kind of recitative kind of uh, way of singing in it. It's 24 bars long in the course of, a, uh, of a, the rest of the piece that's going by in 8 and 16-bar units. The same thing is true in the blurred lines, that it's a 24-bar unit. It starts out... Um, similarly in voice, and then the rap, rapper T.I. comes in, but it's a 24-bar second. It happens at, at the exact same time point as in the, both recordings, 226 to 258. We had to put it in bar numbers for it, the exact same bar number. Um, that's one of the things that made us think that they used, the, they used Got to Give It Up as a kind of template, that it was more than any one of the individual parts, but there, that there were larger structural things that, that, that sort of revealed that Got to Give It Up had to have been the model for it. Um, I can play you that part. Here it is in the Marvin Gaye. Move it up. 
shake it down. Ooh, be. And here it is in blurred line. Good girl, the way you grab me, must wanna get nasty. Go ahead, get at me. One thing I ask of you, let me be the one you bad that ass to. Go from Malibu to Paribu, yeah, I can handle a bit, but she ain't bad of you. So, hit me up when you pass through. I give you something big enough to tell your ass to. Swag on them even when you drag casual. Okay, so you get the idea. You know, and so then we oh, a chart was presented that showed all the, uh, the combination of elements that recur in the piece. So you may be wondering how the blurred line par parties tried to discredit our argument inverted. Their primary strategy was to insist on a literal interpretation of the notation in the copyright deposit. The opposing expert, Sandy Wilbur, claimed that unless the rhythm, pitch, and placement within the measure were identical, there could be no significant similarity. We, in fact, used both. Let's look um, see, I think I, I missed something here. Oh, okay, no, no. What I, what I meant to say is I feel that the, what they did with the notation is something I call notation craziness. And I'm going to show you two examples that show you what I mean by this. Okay, here's an example of notation cra craziness. So this is from the amicus curiae brief on behalf of the blurred line side. They said that Fennell didn't use the notation as exactly was in the copyright lead sheet, and they pointed to these differences. <laughs> okay, the musicians are laughing, right? Because where I come from, a dotted quarter note and a quarter note tied to an eighth note are the same thing. To me, to deny this is like saying, similar to saying in math, that two by two is times two is not the same as four. Here's another kind of difference they pointed to. Okay, in Fennell's notation, there was just an eighth note, and the copyist for the uh, lead sheet, it was an eighth note tied to a quarter note. Same thing for the baseline. Okay, what's the difference here? The tie over into the uh, the following measure. Same thing here. And the difference here is a neighbor note in the, um, in the copyright lead sheet. So here's what they said about us. Ms. Fennell and Professor Munson's melodic comparisons present non-corresponding portions of the melodies of the two works and distorted the duration and placement of notes in their presentation. To show you how absurd this is, um, I want to play you two melodies that I think you will recognize. So I've rhythmically displaced the second example. Now, the notation looks kind of different here because of the rhythmic displacement, but did you have any trouble recognizing the melody? I don't think so. So, happy birthday. So, the point is that the, the melodies remain recognizable 
um, even with changes in location and rhythm. So a strict interpretation of notation doesn't speak to how music actually operates in the way we hear. So in summary, our case emphasized a combination of similarities that point to God to give it up, the originality of God to give it up combination, the heard similarities rather than the literal representation with notation, and that the accompaniment parts were part of Marvin Gaye's composition. Now let's turn to the broader social justice issues of the case. My interest as a scholar is in how the Copyright Act of 1909, by requiring a musically notated copyright dis um, deposit, discriminated against orally composed and partially orally composed music. Many of these copyright deposits were lead sheets stripped down versions of pieces, including only the melody and chords of a song, but sometimes uh, other accompaniment parts as well. Over time, this shorthand version of a work for copyright deposit led to an erroneous idea that in popular music, the composition was limited to the melody and the underlying harmonies. Everything else is arrangement. Adding walking bass lines, drum rhythms, harmonizations, and counter lines were not viewed as compositional, but rather as the application of generic styles to a melody. They were not considered part of the composition. In my work as a scholar of African-American musics, I know that some of the most innovative musical creativity in, in the 20th century genres of jazz, R&B, soul, and others are exactly these accompaniment parts which musicians call grooves or rhythmic feels. They are not mechanical styles, but living, breathing complexes of melodies, rhythms, and harmonies that artists have weaved and reweaved into the extraordinary recorded archive that forms the lifeblood of African-American and American popular music. If accompaniment parts are simply generic, how come they have changed so drastically over time and are often frequently the most recognizable parts of compositions? Raise your hand if you recognize this piece. So within the first couple bars of hearing that bass line, a number of you who know the song recognized it. What about this one? Okay, you got it. I'm like the yes. <laughs> Temptations, Papa was a Rolling Stone. That the bass line is absolutely signature. And how about this one? Oh. Watch me! Watch me! I got it. It's particularly absurd in James Brown, and I've seen some James Brown copyright deposits that just have the melody and the chords. It's like you can't recognize the song without the bass line. Um, and they were newly developed bass lines. They weren't, uh, you know, you know the, the, the idea of the bass line evolves over time. So the question of when and 
When an innovation in a group becomes standardized, widespread, and hence becomes generic, seems to me to be a fundamentally historical question requiring careful comparison of, of specific examples. In the Blurred Lines infringement case, our side showed that its authors were not channeling a late 70s feel as they so frequently claim, but rather were modeling their song on the specific recording of Got to Give It Up. Our side's social justice brief was sponsored by the Institute for Intellectual Property and Social Justice at Howard University and was written by Latif Ntima of the Howard University Law School and Sean O'Connor of the University of Washington Law School. It provides a multi-pronged argument that leads to the conclusion that restricting copyright protection to lead sheet deposits perpetuates traditions of copyright injustice. Consider music special place and copyright registration. Although books, drawings, etchings, maps, prints, musical scores, and films were mediums accepted by the 1909 Copyright Act, sound recordings were not covered by federal copyright law until 1972, and then only for recordings made after January 1st, 1972. Any protection for earlier recordings was to be found only in state laws. Nevertheless, recordings weren't accepted for copyright protection until January 1st, 1978, after God to Give It Up was re re, um, recorded. In my opinion, the Blurred Lines attorneys presented a rigid interpretation of the 1909 Copyright Act at every turn. This anachronous use of notation as a standard is at odds with today's fluorescence of oral composition through the use of computers and remix. To be clear, the Blurred Lines parties used an anachronistic notational argument in defense of a piece that was itself orally composed, that is, Pharrell's piece. Let's turn to the criticism of the verdict in our case, which is claimed that our case will adversely affect younger musicians. To address these issues, it's important to step back and recognize that the purpose of copyright protection is not confined to protecting an author's economic rights. It is also supposed to advance the arts and encourage innovation by providing an incentive to produce new works that serve the public interest. That's why the term of authorial copyright is time limited. Copyright policy should try to balance public and social justice interests against the rights of the authors to benefit economically from their uh, work. A younger musician's right to use prior works and the creation of new works is protected by the fair use doctrine. The Blurred Lines authors could have used a smaller number of parts from God to Give It Up, plus things from other recordings, uh, and potentially have avoided um, the uh, accusation of infringement. They instead used the piece as a template and borrowed lots and lots of parts. And this is unusual. In many of the copyright cases, um, you know, are restricted to like one phrase or, or one part. In my opinion, this analytic provides a way to assess the boundary between fair use of pre-existing works and deliberate copyright violation. In our technology-driven musical age where remix and reuse have made it infinitely easier to copy earlier work, the public interest in the creation of new original works would seem to be served by not making it too easy to copy freely from any one work. 
Today's younger artists may find themselves in the same boat 20 years down the line when a new generation of artists begins to copy their works in a blatant fashion. In the end, I think that the younger generation of artists should not be given free license to copy pre-1978 recordings by exploiting a law that discriminated against African-American musicians in the first place. The right balance between the social interests of giving the public fair access to artistic works and the authorial rights of authors has yet to be determined and will likely to be and is likely to be debated for some time. Thank you. Thanks, Ingrid, for that fascinating overview of your involvement in the case. Um, I'm going to give you a break for a second, and I'm going to start with Rob. Um, Rob, it seems to me like the issue of musical borrowing presented a bit differently in the Down Under case. And I was wondering if you could start us off by giving us an overview of what that case was about. Sure. Um, so the Down Under case, which um, many of you will probably remember, um, concerned uh, an iconic um, Australian song. In fact, two iconic Australian songs. The first being uh Sits in the Old Gum Tree, which um, uh, pretty much everyone uh, who grew up in Australia grew up singing at some point at school, and um, uh, Men at Work's song Down Under, which if you're an Australian and you've travelled abroad, you ended up singing at some point late at night uh, in a pub. Um, and uh, there is an iconic flute riff um, at the beginning of uh, Land Down Under, which um, during a... Uh, game show on, on ABC in about 2007, I think uh, a question arose, where is, what was the, what was the inspiration for that flute riff? And that actually sparked uh, a, a light bulb moment for the copyright owner, which um, apparently up to that point, it never occurred to them that Men at Work um, had a very similar sounding flute riff to um, uh, two very familiar bars, of, in fact, the opening bars of Cookbar. Uh, and so the case involved um, a um, a copyright violation case under Australian law, um, which uh, alleged that um, it's a very similar test, although not identical to the US, which was um, whether um, a substantial part of Kookaburra had been copied um, by men at work. Um, and it, we, we went to trial, the trial judge found uh, that it had, um, and um, as you said in the opening, um, that decision was ultimately upheld all the way through. But it, it's, um, so structurally, uh, similar to um, blurred lines, certainly at a at a sort of macro level, but there were some I think important differences. Um, one is that um, when you focus on uh, this this issue that um, that Ingram pointed out about a, an obsessive focus on um, notational similarity, in a sense that went the other way in um, Kookaburra. I don't say that critically of anyone, but um, the two pieces of music, at least to the bit that was most important, were notationally very similar. And so you see in the judgment, um, one of the things that really carried the day for uh, the trial judge in particular was he said, look, you can actually see, you can see the notes um, and they're the same. There's there's some additional notes before, there's some additional notes after, there's a spacing between the, the two critical phrases at, at, at various points. But the judge, in effect, was very influenced by the fact that even though the pieces might not sound the same, in fact, so much so that you could lose it, um, the, 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 the notational similarity was, was obvious. Right, okay. And when you were 
you know, singing down under on your, your gap years and um, things like that. Did you hear the Kookaburra melody? Did you recognize it as that melody from that song? So, so I, I didn't, um, I must say. But interestingly, and there are other facts in the case, again, this is a, perhaps a similarity. There are other facts in the case that were um, unhelpful, perhaps, for, for, for um, uh, the Minute Work Interest, which was EMI, um, because, for example, the band had in various concerts sung kookaburra over the okay. top um okay. at that at that moment okay. so there, there yeah. were it, it had not gone unnoticed right okay all right um ingrid i i sort of want to go back to what you were saying um earlier in the blurred lines case we don't have a note for note similarity like we have in in down under and from what i understand from your presentation and from what i've read the the real issue here is that there's the redeployment of an arrangement that marvin gay did forgot to give it up in blurred lines it's sort of the arrangement of the parts um, or um, forgot to give it up that makes the, the borrowing problematic. And I'm um, when I'm reading the public kind of conversation about this 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 um, this case, I, I get the sense that some listeners struggle to identify arrangement as being the product of intellectual work, even though they can sort of readily identify melody mm -hmm. as the product mm -hmm. of, of intellectual work. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand what underpins that listening bias. Well, there's, there's. First of all, I, I wanted to say the closest note for note similarity are in the groove accompaniment okay. parts. Yeah. And there, this I because I think it's partly an artifact of the 1909 Copyright Act in which popular song was represented in lead sheets that were often made after the record, and they didn't include the accompaniment part. So there was a natural way in which that tendency made it assumed, oh, they're just playing some canned lines to do this. Um, whereas if you talk to anybody who who develops these parts, it's, it's very much a creative process. I, I had the opportunity to talk to the piano player of Bruce Springsteen's band, and he said, you know, now we're you know we're ab absolutely key in inventing these parts in uh, in the studio. He's so much so that in his contracts he demands one percent of the royalties if he's to appear on the recording. But you have to be a certain high profile person to do this. Yeah. What's really unusual in the Marvin Gaye case is he was playing all those parts, so right. it wasn't a, a case of collective making of the group. He 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 made it himself. Yeah. You know in the in the studio, so that makes the case um, that we made more compelling. Mm -hmm. It would be another level altogether um, to talk about the collective creativity and the collective co composition that frequently goes on in jazz bands in the, in, in the making of a so-called arrangement. I like to cite the example of uh, Miles Davis's My Funny Valentine, mm. which uh, if you transcribe it and everything and put it in your book, you, you have to pay copyright to Oscar and Hammerstein, who are the authors of the song. You, the work that went into creating that arrangement and with its new composition of new lines and accompaniments and different melodies, that's not eligible. Right. Um, uh, and so if you listen to a straight version of My Funny Valentine in Miles Davis's 1956 or 1964 version, you, you will be blown away by the creativity that is expressed mm -hmm. in what he has done with the song. Right. 
to me, that's creative energy. It's intellectual labor. Um, it's also the band uh, working together. And that kind of creativity simply was is not recognized in um, the 1909 Copyright Act. Right. Rob, I kind of want to ask you a, a musicological question, but a softball one. Um, and I'm wondering if you are thinking that, you know, the music that we listen to on a daily basis um, kind of guides us in terms of where we hear originality in a musical work. Um, so for, for those not in the know, I'm the least qualified by a long way to answer any <laughs> vaguely musicological question up here. Yeah. Um, look, I think it does. I think one of the things that is um, interesting about uh, copyright and music is, um, and perhaps copyright generally, but particularly copyright and music that doesn't show up in, for example, copyright and computer programs, is um, everyone has, I think, an instinctive feeling about where the appropriate uh, boundary is. And it is all the cases talk about a balance, and there's got to be this balance between not stifling creativity, but at the same time protecting creativity to enough so that creativity will flourish. Mm -hmm. And I, I think um, that it, it is actually uh, it, it is a, an interesting thing that uh, one of the one of the uh, trends in this era, I think, is uh, is people hear similarity when they're familiar both to the original and mm -hmm. the copies. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we were actually talking about this a bit before, whereas. Where and I, I sort of, in, in a sense, actually wonder whether the, the Marvin Gaye blurred lines issue would have actually shown up in Australia um, mm. with those pieces, because the lack of sort of widespread familiarity with Marvin Gaye's work, at least to the same extent, with not having a community locally based who identifies with it as strongly, perhaps whether that means that we would have been slower to pick it up. Yeah, um, I, I think those things are interesting and and prevalent because you you tend to hear similarity if you are really familiar with the source work and mm -hmm. you, you you miss it sometimes if you're not right. Um, I want to just stay on that idea for a moment. You know, one of the things that kind of keeps me up at night is this idea that we might be moving toward originality tests for music, and I'm wondering, um, you know, how the Australian legal system is placed to handle all of the different ways claims of ownership might arise in a copyright infringement lawsuit. So I, look, that is the big that is the big question, I think, in copyright um, areas generally, and particularly in the creative arts. It's, um, I actually think that the test that we have, which is a really old test, I mean, the, the test for copying and, and, and breach of copyright is really old. Um, people tend not to think it is, but it's, you know, for a legal test, 100 years, it's a pretty old test. That, 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 that's still working. That's pretty good. And I think one of the things that works well about it is it gives actually a lot of latitude. If you read the cases in this area, I think they make a lot of sense, a lot of common sense. They say, look, it's a question of substantiality. Substantiality is not measured just in quantity. It's qualitative. Mm -hmm. um, it's contextual. You don't look at anything um, decontextualized, but at the same time, um, you do look at uh, things in detail, you can go down to a notational level if that's where you need to be to understand the copying. So expressed at that general level, I think the law is actually very well equipped to deal with um, these problems. The difficulty is always going to be the case by case. 
Yeah. And, um, you know, we, again, we were discussing this earlier in, in America, these, these are jury cases in Australia, the single judge cases. And um, I think some cases will favor judges, some cases will favor juries, and we won't always get that balance right. Right. Okay. Ingrid, I'm wondering about your having experienced the American system and, and sort of a similar question. I know that we can now submit recordings into the copyright register. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, has that made things better or worse in terms of, um, you know, the wave of copyright um, lawsuits that we're seeing? I'm not completely sure about that, but I think it's to the advantage of popular music artists to have the recording as the deposit because it has all the parts in it. Right. Um, you know, it's been interesting, the flurry of activity since our case. Um, you know, you, if you re read the press coverage, we are really hated for this, okay? Um, as if we are destroying the ability of, of artists to uh, freely create. Um, and I don't think that's, I, I think that claim is exaggerated. Now, I have been approached since this case, which by by um, some attorneys wanting a preliminary opinion on things and been stunned by, by some of the things that people are trying to claim are infringement. Uh -huh. um, I think I mentioned to you when we were talking about a, a melody in a hip hop song that spans the range of a major third. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and, and really, if anything, it's like a reciting tone from Gregorian yeah. chant. Right? Yeah. And, and the party that was considering suing this major artist was trying to claim that as as the piece of originality and um, and I thought this has gone too far right. <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, that there are certain things that so but when you sit down and try to quantify what is an a, a original gesture in yep. a piece yeah it's not easy to do right um, and they're matters of judgment, matters of fam familiarity. I find a difference between people of my generation listening to God to give it up in blurred lines and hearing the relationship and some of my students who are much less familiar with the original piece. Right. So there are a lot, there are perceptual issues. Yeah. Um, mm. you know. I, I want to pick up on something that you said um, or that you were talking about a moment ago where um, about collaboration. So I actually didn't know before I had um, before I saw your presentation that Marvin Gaye had played the keyboard part, bass part, and hand percussion, mm -hmm. um, and you know this idea of of maybe it being a harder sell if the um, if the arrangement had been the product of collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at copyright law in the United States, how how well does it work for collaborators, or does it work for collaborators? Well, it, you know, if I look at the history of jazz. Um, look, the copyright, the, you know, the, the royalties from recording, artist royalties from recording have always been like minuscule yeah. because the record companies would deduct the cost of recording from it. And in fact, Charles Mingus saved a letter from Columbia billing him for uh, recording, right, <laughs> recording right. yeah. costs several yeah, yeah. years after, uh, you know, Mingus out or something yeah. like that. Um, but the standard practice then uh, that musicians started to realize that in order to get royalties, they needed to write their own music. Mm -hmm. So in fact, the situation, hence a move away of, from playing standards by jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s and writing their own pieces. Yeah. 
So the reaction against that is to write their own pieces. So we have this wonderful music from these glorious years of of jazz and that the person who wrote the song would get the publishing royalty. So a Wayne Shorter song would get the publishing, Miles Davis would, um, John Coltrane would. But meanwhile, these incredibly innovative rhythm sections like John Coltrane's rhythm section or... um, Miles Davis's second quintet. Yep. They weren't cut in on the royalties yep. from that. Right. They 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 later went on to, you know, do their own, their own work, but there's a question, you know, that that without those accompaniment parts, would the pieces have been as powerful? Yeah. Yeah. Um Rob, one of the things that you and I have spoken about before was the level of public offense surrounding the Down Under case. And in preparing for this conversation, I was rereading this 2012 Good Weekend article that was just full of, of vitriol and, and, and anger about you know, the fact that this case was brought in the first place. Can you help us understand what the drivers of that public offense were? Why do you think people were so outraged about the finding? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting. I, I, I think... Um... One of the things that's interesting about Down Under um, is, and, and Kookaburra is it, certainly my conversations with people around uh, about that case at the time and afterwards was there's a degree of, first of all, surprise that anyone owned the copyright to Kookaburra. Um, um, for those who didn't know, it was, it was uh, written originally for the Girl Guides um, in the 1930s, but the idea that anyone owned the copyright to that was was a shock to lots of people, um, and there was a there was a there was a sense of I think communal ownership over that, and I, I use that word advisedly, that term advisedly, and in, in the sense that uh, it, you know it, it's a problematic notion communal ownership over somebody else's work, but I think there was this sense of like well everyone just sings it in school and no one's getting performance royalties from that, and yeah. um, it, it's just something that sort of belongs to the community and. So that was, I think, one aspect of it, which is how how can it be a misuse to use something that kind of belongs to all of us? Mm-hmm. And then I think the other aspect of it was this beloved Australian anthem in Down Under, which um, I think a lot of people took the view, well, it's even better now that it uses Kookaburra and that I know it uses Kookaburra because it's picking up on this iconic Australian song. And just right. like it mentions Vegemite and all these other things that I know, it's mentioning Kookaburra and it's doing so musically and isn't that clever. Yeah. And that actually improves the work. It's, it's you know, and then we have all the debates as you started with about its, its illusion. You know, this is you know, what Shakespeare did. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is standard part of the course stuff. Um, and... Um, I, I think that one of the interesting things that really does put the Blurred Lines case in a different context is there isn't, I, I don't think there's a defensible case of cultural appropriation with Kookaburra um, and Land Down Under, although people may disagree with that, but mm-hmm. that's that's my own view. But obviously the cultural politics of, um, of, of uh, Blurred Lines and, and Marvin Gaye are, are, are very different. Mm. I, um, Ingrid, I, I have kind of a similar question for you about the way that um, got to give it up is is kind of a culturally charged work. I'm wondering if if Robin Gay or sorry if Robin Thicke and um, Pharrell had referenced a less familiar, less celebrated Marvin Gaye song. Do you think that the level of public engagement would have would have been the same? Well, I think it was particularly strong because a lot of people really knew that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, you, you have to be careful, you know, and they had the option. At first, Jan Gay heard the piece and thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic for Marvin Gaye, you know, and, and she called them up and said, let's make a licensing deal or something like that. Yeah. And the response was for Rob, Robin Thicke's attorney to sue them. Mm -hmm. um, I, there could have been a different outcome here. In yeah. fact, they really thought they were on the path to a more peaceful solution of this when the suit was, was filed. So they started the fight. Right. Um, no, I, you know, I think it, when the thing quoted is well known, yeah. um, it makes the impact more powerful. Mm. I have, have one last question for both of you. Um, Ingrid, in the Blurred Lines case, the Marvin Gaye family won, and Rob, in the Down Under case, Men at Work lost, should musicians be discouraged or encouraged by the verdicts they see being rendered in copyright infringement lawsuits? Well, that depends, I think. <laughs> if your work is being infringed and you win the case, you're probably very happy about it. Yeah. Um, if you're being sued mm -hmm. by somebody who claims that your, your piece that you think of as original has infringed on something, you're not going to be happy about it. Yeah. Okay, Rob, what do, what do you think? Uh, look, I, I think um, uh, I, I think we need. I think we're we're reaching a stage where um, copyright. We have to be careful with our copyright laws because um, it, it has been the case for a century that people have talked about the need for balance. But the balance is something that you kind of face up to every every new case, yeah. and I I think um, while I actually I, I don't um, have a difficulty with the outcome in in either case, it is I think interesting that there was criticism of the result in both cases, uh -huh. um, and, and I think the the criticism I think as I understand it is is, is for different reasons, um, but I I I do. Um, I do worry, I'll talk about Kookaburra because it's the one that I, I know best. I do worry that um, while I think actually, truth be told, it's probably a right, the right result on the law as it stood there, as sort of the time it stands today, um, it's the right result legally. I am personally troubled that um, you can't have a tongue-in-cheek allusion, refer cultural reference mm -hmm. to a beloved folk song. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 50 years after the event yeah. that you're not doing to steal the creativity of that original work. You're not doing because you want to appropriate some culture that you're not a part of. You're just doing because you think it's a fun illusion consistent with the fun song that you're writing. That, that troubles me and the law's inability to deal with that in a way that, um, that accommodates that troubles me. Now, having said that, yep. the judge ultimately awarded five percent royalties, which is is not a huge sum, but in a sense, somewhat down under, it's it's not nothing either. Yep. Um, so one way of dealing with it is just to make the damages very small, but um, it does that result, I must say, does trouble me, and we haven't come up with a fix for it. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. 
For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.